<laughs> Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the beautiful day you've given us. We thank you for the sunshine. And Lord, we thank you that we can come together to worship you. Lord, may you be here with us today. And Lord, may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off with a, a quote from C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors. And his quote is, For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. It's a pretty, pretty deep quote there. Um, we've mentioned before, and this is the last Sunday of the designated Pride Month um, that we've hear, heard a lot about and maybe you've seen around and maybe you watch, whether you watch on shows or advertisement and so forth. We hear a lot about pride, a certain kind of pride. And I thought I'd start off the message. Normally I kind of do a little antidote or story or an analogy or something, but uh, I want to start off sharing what the Bible says about pride. Because we hear a lot about pride, we see a lot about pride I want to start off sharing what the Bible says about pride. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Psalm 10.4, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 16, verse 18, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 6, 16, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and the one who spreads strife among brothers. A couple more, Proverbs 21.4, haughty eyes or proud, arrogant eyes, in a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. Finally, 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now why do I start off with these verses? Many will trumpet pride as something to celebrate, to boast on. And I thought it would be good to give a little bit of contrast and context, right? The irony of the month being called Pride Month. And yet we have a contrast of what Scripture describes as pride. It's interesting, of all the verses we looked at, what pride and haughtiness is associated with. Evil, dishonor, stumbling, even to the point of abominations before God. That's how Scripture presents pride. Now, I don't know how many of you remember back in a couple of months ago, but we started this study several, a couple of months or so ago. And I started off the study sharing some, some statistics 
about people's beliefs in God. And I, I mentioned that, or we looked at some studies, and there was a Gallup poll in 2022 that said 81% of U.S. adults responded saying they believe in God. Now, they weren't, the, the, didn't say necessarily specific God, but they believed in God, right? A higher being. 81% of the U.S. adults still said they believed in God. Now, this has been declining ever since they started this poll, but still 81%. But perhaps the most eye-opening statistic that I came upon that I shared with you all was the percentage of people who still held on to a biblical worldview. Now, a worldview is how you see the world, how you live your life, the, the perceptions, the beliefs that you, you bring into how you live your life, your worldview, how you see things, okay? The percentage of people, and this is according to a separate study in 2021, those who held to a biblical worldview, only 6% of U.S. adults who responded Respond is saying they have a biblical worldview. Now you're talking about, like this is roughly percentages, right? A vast majority of people saying they believe in God, but only 6% hold to a biblical worldview. In that same Barna study, they showed that those who, they, they talked about how they identified, majority of the people they talked to self-identified as quote-unquote Christians. They didn't give any qualifications necessarily, but they identified themselves as Christians. This was the majority of the group who responded, okay? But of that group, 71% of those who identified as Christians consider feelings, experience, or the input of friends and family as the most trusted sources of moral guidance. So you're kind of connecting, you're following. Majority of people are saying they're, they believe in God. Only a very fraction of percentage of U.S. adults say they hold to a biblical worldview because majority of people, in terms of where they go to for moral guidance, they go to family, friends, their own experiences, as their most trusted guide for morality or their decisions. So it's no surprise that many of those who identify as Christians feel conflicted or compelled to compromise on many issues. From a biblical standard to popular sentiment. If the biblical worldview isn't your most trusted source for moral guidance, it's people, it's family, it's your experience, then it's no wonder you're going to see compromise. And you're going to follow popular sentiment over biblical standard. And perhaps there's no more conflicting issue today than the topic of LGBTQ and gender identity overall, right? Today, that's probably the most predominant, conflicting issue, not only facing people, but particularly facing the church today, 
right? Because no one wants to be labeled a homophobe. No one wants to be labeled as hateful. No one wants to be labeled as judgmental, right? None of us want that. Nor do we try to be, hopefully. No one wants to be characterized as unkind or unloving. Many of us may know somebody we deeply care about, perhaps even love, or we're very close to, who can uh, identify or who experience same-sex attraction, or they themselves identify as gay or lesbian. Many of us may know somebody, or maybe you yourself, can identify with what's, what's called gender dysphoria. Maybe you've heard of that before. What's gender dysphoria? Gender dysphoria is, is, uh, is defined as psychological distress that results from an incongruence between one's biological sex, or what they refer to today as assigned at birth, and one's quote-unquote gender identity. Right? That's the, the, the definition, gender dysphoria. There's a distress that results from an incongruence between your biological sex and one's quote-unquote gender identity. Okay? Now these days, we have to pay attention to the jargon that we see, the language that is used today. When people say they use assigned at birth, what does that mean? When people use assigned at birth, that's reference to when a baby is born and they're identified as a boy or a girl, right? Those of you who have been parents before, you remember that moment. If you didn't find out during the ultrasound and the baby's born and they say it's, it's a boy or it's a girl. And I think we know how they determine those things, right? And if you don't know, that's a great car ride, car ride uh, conversation there, okay? So that's what they refer to. That's the language people use as assigned at birth. They, they use that to describe the moments when the baby is identified as boy or girl at birth. Gender identity, right? How many, you don't have to raise your hands. How many of you heard that phrase thrown around a lot? That refers, they refer to that as a personal conception of oneself as male, female, both, or neither. Their identity may or may not correspond with their biological sex. So when someone says gender identity, they're saying how one individual sees themselves or conceives of themselves as male or female based on their biological sex, whether it is congruent with it, corresponds with it, or not. Now, of course, we know that there are those who will forcibly push this language, this jargon, this gender ideology of how to identify a baby boy or a girl, or ba- identify a baby as a boy or girl. And they'll say today, you hear this a lot, that it should not be up to the parents to decide this, but it's up to the child as they get older, how they confirm or feel about themselves whether they want to identify as a boy or a girl. Now, the average person, right, this is, this is as you go around, this is the common or at least the momentum of the discussion of how we are told we should perceive 
this topic, right? The average person does not realize that the commonly accepted views that's going around, that's the, the momentum is going today on sexuality, identity, and particularly of gender identity, right? All this familiar language and terminology about gender, even the term gender and gender identity, people don't realize that all these, this language and references derive from atheistic or atheist scientists over the last, so, 120 years. You don't have to raise your hands. I'm not sure if you realize that. If you've, if you've done some research and looked into, well, where do we get this terminology? Where do we get these, this mentality of this thinking, this idea of gender identity, this idea of subjective gender, this idea of sexuality? Where does this come from? If you go back in the research, a lot of the language and terminology and understanding goes back to quote-unquote research some of these scientists did over the last 120 or so years. And maybe you'd be surprised at how many of these scientists were atheists. In fact, many of these scientists held some pretty horrific ideologies, one of them being eugenics. They may not tell you that. Some of them, many of them, affirmed other sexual depravity, things that we certainly would not want to affirm. And they performed these studies, this research, and this data that they accumulated under some pretty deplorable conditions. That is the framework of where we get a lot of the terminology, a lot of the ideas, a lot of the beliefs that we hear today. But most people don't really know the roots of it. They hear about it. And they especially hear from it from people who you care about, who are potentially struggling with this or know people are struggling with this. And so your heart is like, oh, you want to show love. You want to show understanding. But we may not realize where that ideology and mentality and belief system comes from. Society has allowed a vast minority segment of the population to redefine and establish a language for the majority. This is how we ought to believe. This is how we ought to think. And this is how we need to set the standard. And if you think about it, if people latch on to truth that has roots in atheistic worldview, right? If you latch on to truths that come from an atheistic worldview, do you think your beliefs, your worldviews, your attitude to certain things would change? Certainly, right? If, your world, if the, the belief system comes from a particular worldview, it will color everything they interpret the world. That's how worldview works. You and I may have a worldview, right? That's how you see the world. That's how you interpret things, right? So before we address certain or specific issues such as LBGTQ or gender issues, I want us to first look at Scripture and the origins of the biblical perspective. Because my hope as the pastor here is that we would all have a biblical worldview. That's my hope. And if you're a Christian or you identify as a Christian, 
this should not be like controversial, right? This should not be a conflicting goal. If you identify as a Christian, you should want to have a biblical perspective and worldview, right? That's not too conflicting. If you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here, right? Because you want to know what is influencing not only your worldview, but also what is influencing a Christian worldview. I don't know whether if, you know, wherever people are at, if you have a conversation or you have this idea of the Christian perspective when it comes to particularly issues such as LGBTQ issues or gender issues, your perspective may be, well, it's a hateful, intolerant, or whatever it may be perspective. So you deserve to hear what the roots are as to what the biblical perspective is when it comes to these topics. So we're going to get into Genesis chapter 2. Last week, I, t- I promised you we get into chapter 2. We are in chapter 2 of Genesis, starting in verse 4. It says this, And this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heavens and the heavens. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The bedellium and the onyx stone are there. Verse 13. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every, every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to, his, to the wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not 
ashamed. Okay, a lot on that chapter. And just like we did in chapter 1, we're going to take our time. Okay, we're going to be in this chapter for a little bit. Okay, we're not going to rush into things. We're going to set aside a lot of important mentions. There's a lot of things in chapter 2. We're going to set aside for a second. And I'm going to ask us to focus on two things. We're going to focus on two gifts that we see that God gives in chapter 2. And these two gifts present two very important basic truths to our lives. These are inherent gifts that God has given, but is also under attack and it's also front and center in many people's minds. The first gift is the gift of identity. The gift of identity. We saw in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, after God created all the things, He saved people for last. Man and woman for last. And He said in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in God's image. According to our likeness. According to God's likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Both male and female were created in God's image and according to his likeness. In chapter 2, we see a little bit more description of this. In verse 7 says, the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So then the Lord took the man and put him into the garden to cultivate it and keep it. So now there's a distinct detail given to us about the creation of man over all the other living creatures. Right? We see this. God created the first man, forming him from the dust from the ground. And it says he breathed life into him. And from that point on, he became a living being. Man has a distinct identity from all his other creation. We saw in chapter 1, God was very active in his creation. He saw, he spoke He named, he assigned, he gathered together, he separated. And here we see that God breathed. He breathed life into man. However, there's something about this creative account about man that is distinct from all the other creative acts that we've seen. In all the other creative acts, we've seen that God saw that it was good. But here's this one instance And the only instance where we see that God saw that something was not good. In other words, it was not satisfying. And what was that? Verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, of all that was created, what did God say was not good? Think of all that He created. It wasn't spiders. Some of you would say that, of all things. I wish God would not create spiders. It wasn't bugs. It wasn't cats. All right, I'm not a cat person. I'm very allergic to cats. 
It wasn't how the stars are aligned. What wasn't satisfying or wasn't good was that man is alone. So God declared he would fashion, he would build a helper. This term that's used for helper here, the one who helps, he's going to build and fashion a helper. Verse 19, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought him to the man to see what he would call. So he brings all these living creatures up to the man, and he gives the man the authority to call the living creatures and to give names to these creatures. But what do we find at the end of it? But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. As I mentioned, we got a dog recently. And what are dogs known for? Man's best friend. And I can see why. We got a a German shepherd. It's mostly German shepherd. I didn't realize this, but German shepherds are known for their loyalty. They're very emotionally attached to their owners. And I can see that. This dog does not want to leave your sight. And I can see how he, can, he is going to be our protector. Right? Dogs, a man's best friend. It wasn't a cat, it's a dog, right? Okay. I'm sorry if you have cats. No, it's, uh, God bless you. If you invite me to your house someday and you have a cat, I will be outside. Because I will die. All right? I, I, I might die. But anyways, all right, that's besides the point. So there was no, all these animals, it wasn't the monkeys, it wasn't the dogs, it wasn't all these things. There was no helper suitable for the man. Verse 21, so the Lord caused, Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now that word for rib we, we, you know, the NSB translates it rib and some other translations translate as rib. But in most, uh, and pretty much this is the only, actually, back up. This is the only instance when this word is used in the Old Testament where it's translated as rib. It's generally referred to as the side, the side of something, whatever it is, okay? So it's probably the better translation to see it as, a slot, as the side of the man and not just a single bone like a rib, okay? So here we see this picture. From the, so from the side of the man, God builds and fashions woman. So it's important to note that while woman was built from the material of man, right, a shared substance, woman was not created in the image and likeness of man. Catch that? Even though woman was created from the same material substance as the man, came from the man, woman was not created in the image and likeness of man. But what do we see in Genesis 1? Both God created both male and female in the image and likeness of who? God. Man is not the inspiration for the woman, nor is woman the inspiration for the man. God is the inspiration for the creation of man and woman. Man and woman were created in the image of God 
according to his likeness. He is the image and pattern. We spent a couple of messages ago talking about how we were created with this innate, inherent ability to replicate. Not only genetically, right? We have likeness of our parents, but we are sponges. That's how we learn. We copy, right? We want to mirror or image somebody else. But God intended us to be created to be like Him. Not God Himself, but according to His likeness. So it's interestingly how God created man and woman. There's a unique identity, yet they are related. And it's interesting that the Lord God brought her to the man. Here's a similar scene, right? Remember, God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I'll make a suitable helper for him. He brings all the animals, calls all the animals, brings that to Adam. And Adam names the animals that not a suitable helper was found. But here we see in verses 19 and 20, a similar scene. God brought, verse 23, or I'm sorry, let me back up. This time God brings the woman to the man. Notice in both scenarios, God is the provider. God brings the woman to the man. In verse 23, And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The man recognizes and understands that they are of the same flesh, but she is distinct from all the living creatures. Just a little point of clarity, some of the Hebrew terms that are being used when it refers to the man. Adam. The Hebrew for man or Adam there is generally used for, you know, we see Adam, right? So in your Bibles, it may translate as Adam, referring to the first man. But it's also used as a general term to represent mankind. Okay, so some, some tricky times at moments, you have to differentiate as a referring to mankind in general or the single first man or Adam himself. But then there's two other Hebrew words that are used that is distinctive, specifying to the woman. In other instances, is referred to as the wife or the female. And then there is another term that's used for the man or the male or often used for the husband. So there's a general term that's used and then also for the male and for the female. So when Adam sees, says she shall be called woman, the female is Shah. Because she was taken out of Ish, out of the man. So God creates this distinct identity between man and woman. And men and women were not created to be clones. Right? You look at how God created. He didn't create them to be clones of each other. But they're distinct from each other. I think it's interesting. This woman was born out of this necessity. This unsatisfactory situation. God creates man, but he says it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to fashion a helper suitable for the man. Now when people read that and they hear that, that word helper for man, might make some people cringe. Because some people think a helper they see this depiction of weakness or a subservient role, right? When you think of a helper, you're thinking of like a maid 
or you're thinking of a hired servant. But that's not the picture that the scripture is presenting. In fact, this word that's used for helper, in the other instances, majority, vast majority of the instances, this word for helper is used in scripture. You know what it refers to? It refers to the Lord to his people. The Lord is referred to as this helper. Okay? Here's some verses. Psalm 33, 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. Same word. And our shield. Psalm 115, 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Hosea 13.9, it is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Same word. See, the word that God said is, I'm going to make him a helper. That's the same term that he uses for himself, for his people. And we certainly don't qualify God or see God as weak or subservient to us. So in fact, this picture that we see as God builds and forms woman, it's not one of weakness or unequalness. It is one of strength. It is one of significance. It is one from a need. It was not good for man to be alone. Can I say amen to that? I mean, I praise God. He says it was not good for man to be alone. We see this interesting dynamic now of this relationship between man and woman. God first created man. He gave the man authority to call and name the woman. But the woman was given by God to be that exact help to the man in need. So based on this use of the word helper, we see this picture of this help based on strength, certainly not of weakness. But see, the beauty of this relationship deepens. The nature, this is the first human relationship God creates. Think about that. Don't get lost in the fact that if, if there's any scenarios that God would create people, right? we could probably think of a lot of different ways that he could probably make something up. The first relationship he creates for people is between this man and this woman. And in this first human relationship, what's the nature of this relationship? I say is the second gift. The second gift from God is intimacy. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to the wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, the nature of this first relationship created by God is one of deep intimacy. Think about how he created. From the part of the side of man, God created woman. And out of a part, God made a whole, right? And when the two parts come together, they make a union. So out of this gift of intimacy comes this first relationship, this marriage relationship. And within this marriage relationship, through sexual intimacy, through physical intimacy, 
Man and woman will carry out God's command that we saw in chapter 1, which was what? Be fruitful and multiply. Two becomes one flesh. Physical and sexual intimacy represents the union, but the level of intimacy designed, intended by God for the marriage relationship. You think about all the ways God could have created, right? Relationships, people. He just said, look, I'm going to create this level of intimacy in this relationship for the husband and wife. And we know for those of us who are married, marriage relationships require, it's not just a physical sexual intimacy. That's a part of it. But it's relational intimacy. Because look what it says, for this reason, right? How God created and how he brought them together. He says, for this reason, the man shall leave and cleave. Leave and cleave. I don't know if that's been your motto. <laughs> leave and cleave. What does that mean? The man lets, lets go of that dependent relationship of mother and father. All right, let me say that again. The man or the husband is to leave let go, not like you don't abandon your parents. You don't say, all right, mom, dad, see ya. I'm not going to see you anymore. I have to just stay with my wife for the rest of my life. That's not the point. You're leaving the dependence of the mother and father. And what are you doing? You're cleaving to your wife. What does that mean to cleave? Stay close. Cling. Stick to. Stay with. That's why dogs are known as a man's best friend, right? Because wherever you go, man, the dog just follows you. Goes wherever you want to go. He's like, all right, I'll, I'll follow you there. That's the, the dynamic of intimacy that God created for the husband and wife, that the husband leaves the father, the dependency of the mother and the father, and you cling to your wife. Stay with, stick to, stay close. So God created men and women to be uniquely different, but with the purpose of being complementary to one another. And nothing captures this more than the marriage relationship. We'll get into more of this of the marriage relationship later on. But what we see is this union and intimacy was created to embody the provision of God but also that the man and woman would represent his visible representation and according to his likeness. This is what God intended for man and woman, for people. Man and woman created distinctly, uniquely, and purposefully. And he created them uniquely, purposely, distinctly to come together in an intimacy and a union to establish what we know of as family. So that this family unit, this family relationship would be the means in which we would be fruitful and multiply. Right? Some of our families here, some of us have been more fruitful and multiplied more than others, right? God designed the family unit to include father and mother. This doesn't diminish single parents, okay? I'm not, I'm not diminishing that. You know, those who are single parents, for whatever reason or cause, it's not diminishing your role, because you have a tremendous role. Some, some have to fulfill both roles. 
But we're talking about God's intention, His design, what He intended for people to experience and to have. But the enemy, as we've seen, has taken what God designed to be something beautiful, shared between a loving marriage relationship, and He's used it as a weapon of power, a weapon of seduction, a weapon of deceit. What God has intended as gifts, the enemy has sabotaged, distorted, and in many cases destroyed. In particular, and we'll get into this in two weeks, sexuality has been weaponized to destroy and damage lives throughout human history, across cultures. Sexuality has been used as a weapon by the most deceitful, corrupt, evil people that's ever walked on this earth. Particularly sexuality has been used under the banner of culture, under religion, to reduce humans, particularly women, as slaves, and children as victims of evil abuse. You go throughout history, different civilizations, cults, the most deceitful things. There's a common thread that's woven throughout all these is the abuse and distortion of sexuality throughout. And we see today identity is often being used to confuse, deceive, destroy people's understandings of what it means to be created in the image of God and in His likeness, according to His likeness. That's why I spent so much time emphasizing the fact that we were created in the image of God according to His likeness. Because we need to understand where we're getting this from. We need to understand why we have the position we have. It's not because we want to feel this way in the sense that, well, this is what you know will make us feel good or make us feel better than other people. It's rooted in God's intention and design for people. Some things to marinate on. I'll close with some of these questions. Something to think about, to marinate over. I gave you a lot to think about. Should there be a point where people take what God intended and change it for their own will and pleasure? I want you to think about that. Should there be a point where people can take what God had intended and change it according to their own will and their own pleasure. God, you may have intended this to be this way, but you know what? I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to see it my way. Is there a point where that should happen? Second thing to think about. Do we trust God's intention to be the ideal good for us and for our understanding of being created in His image and likeness? Do you trust that God's intention for good is the best possible scenario and understanding for your good? Or do you say, you know, God, I don't trust that. I want to do it my way or according to how I feel or what I like, what I want to do, what I'm tempted to do. And then how do we address the societal conflicts to the biblical worldview taught in Scripture? We're going to look at that and address that in a couple weeks. 
In the meantime, I want you to set aside all what the world tells you for a second. I want you to set aside all the noise. If you're a Christian, you identify as Christian, know why you believe what you believe. Know what the Scripture says, what God intended for us to live. Okay? If you're not a believer, I challenge you to know why, at least some, how Christians ought to see the issue at hand. Because it has to be from a biblical worldview perspective. Let me end with this psalm. I brought it up earlier. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. All the discussion, what we're hearing about these issues is coming from an atheistic worldview. And you have people latching on to it, not knowing it's from an atheistic worldview perspective. So I'll leave you with this thought. Who do you trust? And who are you going for your guidance in your life? Is it a biblical perspective from the God that created you and intended for good for you? Or is it a worldly perspective from an atheistic perspective that says there is no God? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we come before you today. Lord, I only want to give you honor and give you glory as creator. Not from my perspective, but Lord, I want to honor you and we want to honor you as our creator. And what you intended for us. So Lord we come before you. And I pray that you would speak truth into our life. Bring clarity to all the noise. And the voices we see and we hear. And may you lead us to truth. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus name.